0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com.
0: chin what are we gonna make what do you crave hold our hearts our
2: My name is Dallas. I'm a young black dyke who grew up in the South, and I love that and I find a lot of pride in that.
3: Welcome to Queer the Table. I'm your host, Nico Whistler. The voice you just heard was Dallas Robinson.
2: I am the owner operator of the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm in Whitakers, North Carolina.
3: Dallas didn't always plan to be a farmer. Dallas has, for a long time, been deeply committed to Black liberation and Indigenous sovereignty.
2: And I think one way that I can make that a reality and keep pushing that work in my lifetime is through agriculture.
3: How did you decide, like, I'm I'm going to be a farmer, I'm going to take this on?
2: Yeah, when I was little, um, I would watch my mom plant flowers, flower bulbs in the fall. And, you know, mess around in the dirt in the spring. And then, boom, all of this color hit. And I was like, is she a witch? How is this happening? What's going on? (laughs) I just thought it was so amazing. And I really loved it. And used to sit with her and watch. And I always loved playing in the soil. So I've, I've, since a little one, been connected to the land and especially dirt. I just think it's fascinating. And as I got older, I thought farmers were cool. It seemed cool to me to, like... Ride a tractor and be close to animals, but I I didn't really think about what it took to grow food. And out here where I live, it's not food you see in fields. Really, like you see corn, and now that I'm older and know what that corn is, I don't really consider it food. But you know, it's heavily heavy tobacco and cotton production. So farming was around, but it was never really a serious option. I was always told get a good job, make sure you can you know pay your rent and Live a successful life. And that didn't include farming at all. And then I graduated from college. I was very much going the route of like, work a good job and still pay your rent. And you'll probably only be able to make it in the city because where else are you going to be black and a lesbian and, you know, dress the way you do? So I, I was starting to hate myself and my life working at these nonprofits in like Newark, New Jersey, and New York that just really exuded anti-blackness and hurt black youth and, and on the premise of like, we're helping these people. It was so disingenuous and I hated it.
3: And were they like food focused nonprofits or? Not
2: even. Yeah. I was doing a lot of youth development work, which I love the youth part. I love kids. They're amazing. I think we should listen to them more. And that was great. But when it came to the nonprofit portion, I was like, this is all lies. So yeah, almost none of it, none of my work specifically had to do with food at all. But um, mm-hmm. I was getting messages from a friend who graduated the year before me for three years straight. She stayed on me and I'm so grateful to her. She's like, Dallas, I did this program at Soulfire Farm. You got to apply to this. The first year she showed me, I think it was summer 20. 20- Fourteen or twenty fifteen, I was like, "That's cute. It looks like camp for adults." I don't have time for this. <laughs> I'm broke. Second year, same thing. I was like, eh, "Maybe I could. I could use like the vacation, but what's this have to do with my life? I'm not gonna farm. That's ridiculous." And then the third year, I was like, "Yeah, actually, I should definitely do this because what do I have to lose at this point?" And I went to Soulfire Farm. Then they called it the. Black and Latinx Farmers Immersion. It's now called BIPOC Fire. And it was just a week that really changed my life. It opened my eyes to all the beautiful African and indigenous to this part of the world contribution and creation in agriculture and our food system that I had no idea about this beautiful revolutionary history that has has been kept away from us and especially as a person who grew up in the south to grow up so close to land and have no idea of this radical history that farmers were such a huge part of in black revolutionary movements i was i was mad at first but extremely proud i was like yo that's fly <laughs> let's let's do this so by that program was a Saturday to a Saturday. By Wednesday, we had this visioning exercise, and I had written down on this little green sheet of paper, I'm going to open the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm and change the South. So that's what I'm working on right now.
3: Oh my God. And when, that's like a big vision. What kind of steps did you take in order to like make what you had written on that little piece of paper real?
2: Yeah. um, Lots of steps, three years worth of steps. Uh, That was 2017. And I, on that same exercise, I was like, I'm going to open this farm next spring. (laughs) So that was different. Uh, That was not what happened. But um, after Soul Fire, I remember calling my mom and being like, listen up, girl, I got a big plan. (laughs) I need your help. Um, I'd like to come back home and open this farm and I'm super privileged and and blessed to have um, 10 acres of land that my parents bought when I was in high school. And I said, can I farm on that land? It's it's a big field. At the time, it was in hay production. And before, it was farmed for tobacco and cotton as well. And she said, yeah, I've never seen you this excited about something. So first thing was sharing the vision with the people close to me and being like, I don't know all the steps, but I know I'm excited and and I want to breathe life into this. The next thing, um, which so far helped out with a great deal, like giving us resources, like where to start apprenticing and how to learn about taxes and grants and all this other stuff. And so I started down the apprentice route. So I'm very much a hands-on learner. Um, however, <laughs> that was also, that had its downs. <laughs> I moved first to a farm in Edenton, North Carolina, and it's the most beautiful place I've ever been to in my life, Nico, like so idyllic on a river. 27 acres was the farm in total. And then this guy, older white guy with just land that had been in his family for years. Um, But the point of this is like the complexity of what was happening for me was one of these other steps was reckoning with the reality that this was land that was very much worked by people who were enslaved at some point, and that was his ancestry owning people. He's a direct descendant of the man who owns the summer who owned the Somerset plantation in North Carolina, which was one of the largest slave owning plantations I think in the country for a while, but definitely in the state. And, you know, one day he was randomly talking to me about that and was telling me, I didn't get any benefit from that. You know, why are people so upset? And I was like, girl, what are you talking about? <laughs> Your family owns a small country in land, essentially. Y'all own hundreds and hundreds of acres. So just the the really sitting with the unawareness of white people in this world is like um, something else. And so... Learning there I saw a lot of what not to do in terms of running a business. As beautiful as that place was and as great as it was, it was um I was really not learning how to manage money well, how to do anything legal or financially sound. He was very much struggling and just I think, you know, if you have a house established and you have your land and you just have to get by with your bills, like you figure that out, but there was nothing really driving a smart business practice for him. So um, for other reasons as well, I left pretty soon after starting there. I think I was there for just under a season and um, I tried again, an apprentice at a place I liked a lot in Tarboro, which is closer to home. I learned right away that I don't want to live on someone else's land, especially if they're White men and um <laughs> that worked out nicely. I could commute and then go home at the end of the day and the way this guy grows is really um he's doing a really beautiful bio intensive intercropping system, like growing nice vegetables that look great, and that was helpful, but again, I was missing that business piece and and I don't mean to say that that's a fault of theirs, but for me, I was like ooh i I know that I can't afford." to just be out here like, I'm growing. There's a whole different level of privilege that these two white men who have generational land and wealth get to play around with. But I'm coming here with my little measly savings, trying to start a farm. Um,
3: right. It's such a barrier when there are older farmers who are just kind of like, I've owned this land forever. It doesn't really matter.
2: Exactly. Um so there were two more apprenticing things and it was nice cuz it was actually start I was starting to move up the chain of work if you will. I got asked to manage a farm at a nonprofit and I was feeling way more comfortable with my vegetable growing and I was learning land um from these these um jobs I'd had previously that was really nice but I was working at this place here in um North Carolina, the Kanita Family Life Center, and the management is really manipulative and awful. And, and it really broke my heart because that's a, a Black-run organization that has way too much credit over here. And I was seeing so much waste of resources, literal seeds, so much food being turned into the ground because there's no one there to actually take it and eat it. So that that left me with a terrible taste in my mouth and I tried one more time with apprenticing at a place in Chicago Illinois this another older black couple this couple lived off grid and Nico when I got there I thought I was going to die of dysentery I was like this place is filthy it was disgusting <laughs> I drove all the way over there I felt so stupid cuz something told me before you know before you commit to this they're telling you oh you're going to learn Um, timber framing. We have so many um, projects to do. You're going to learn about solar energy and how to be off-grid and self-sufficient. I was like, this sounds great. I'm learning from Black people. Um, I should ask for some pictures of the place, but I didn't. I said, that sounds rude. I should have asked for those photos. So (laughs) definitely a big step is like learning to trust my gut. So I ran away (laughs) and um, I was starting to feel a little disheartened because I was like, this shouldn't be this hard. And am I, you know, am I quitting too soon? Like, you know, um, what is something wrong with me? I started to doubt myself, but all the same, I still knew that I loved the work itself and really wanted to keep trying. So I said, okay, to get what you want, I think you're going to have to just do some type of educational formal structure of business for farm management. And so I applied to farm beginnings at the organic grower school in North Carolina. So I moved to Asheville and I hate Asheville, but living there exposed me to a really big food culture that my town does not have. And I think there might be some moves to get it like that. But um it was a very helpful place to get immersed into all the ways agriculture can play out for people. Very white ag scene, but all the same, like everyone needs to eat. So I was trying to just glean as much as possible while keeping my mental health stable. But Farm Beginnings really helped and was a great, great setup for helping me not only get these business skills I'd been looking for, but vision what this farm means to me, what it will feel like when it's functioning in five, 10 years down the road. Who is going to be the community that the farm serves and and who's the community that supports the farm? so that's how you start farm beginnings, and I think that's just an amazing exercise, and it really helped me make decisions based off of that um, value practice to then shape my ventures and what I want to offer and how I want to how I want to live as a farmer.: We're going to
3: take a quick break. When we get back, we'll hear about how Dallas finally turned that vision into a reality.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's super fruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their beautiful red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile makes them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and, of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com.
3: Okay, welcome back to Queer the Table. At this point in the story, Dallas has just finished a farmer training program and was headed back home to get started on the farm.
2: So after farm beginnings and and a proper budget, I was like, oh, this farm is going to cost overestimation $75,000 to start. And that's with everything I need. And I don't need that all at once and definitely did not have that money, still do not have that money. But um." that really gave me grounding in like what it means to invest into land and a land agriculture business. And I was scared as hell before I left Asheville. I was really proud of myself and really excited, but I, we get a mentor in Farm Beginnings and Eileen's this amazing um, older lesbian who lives on this beautiful hill with her wife and their two dogs. And they overlook their three acre farm that's mixed um, vegetables. And, and then they do perennials in a greenhouse. And I was like, y'all are goals. <laughs> um, but being with Eileen was amazing because she was like in a very gentle and sort of stern way, just like, what are you talking about? You're going to wait a little longer. Cause I kept trying to make plans to, Push the farm off. I was like, I don't think I'm ready. You know, I just da 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 da. Maybe I should start out with a garden and all this BS. And she was like, No, you're getting older. You just need to start your farm. So that that pushed me and to really trust myself, basically, which has been a big theme throughout all this. But um, I finished the program in October 2019. Moved back home. And got to work pretty soon right away. It was like late October when I moved home, got settled. I went to the Farm Service Agency office in November, submitted my paperwork for a farm number. There were still so many things that are blind spots and still are um, that that was always like a nerve wracking conversation. I don't know what I don't know in the back of my head, but. I've learned to lean more into, this is what you do know. You will figure out what you don't know. And it's not going to be the end of the world type of conversation with myself. And um, so, yeah, getting help, support, and just, like, being like, you know how to grow food, baby girl. Let's do this.
3: Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, hearing you say, like, talk about the conversations with yourself of, like, okay, you know how to grow food, so much of the way that you talk about your farm, it's deeply rooted in ancestral knowledge, this radical farming history. Um, your farm's namesakes are Harriet Tubman and Fannie Lou Hamer. And I wonder, like, that sounds like you came up with that way back at Soulfire. But do you want to talk about giving the farm that name and how that shows up day to day now that it's it's real?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I The first thing about it is I love... That people have to say Harriet Tubman's name so much when they're talking about the farm. I'm just like, gotcha, <laughs> which it shouldn't be pulling teeth to say her name. She was amazing. Um, yeah, so far, like I said, int- we did this whole timeline thing, and um, Fannie Lou Hamer came up a lot. And I think I was actually introduced to Fannie Lou Hamer at Soulfire. I don't think I knew about her beforehand. And what an amazing human being. Like I was really blown away. Harriet Tubman is someone I was much more familiar with, but it started to occur to me like Harriet Tubman had to know land like nobody else. And Harriet Tubman was an astrologer and Harriet Tubman was an herbalist. She also baked great pies apparently. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And what, what a beautiful thing to think about this black woman in a time that wasn't considered a full human being was just like i believe so much in my skill set and my liberation that i refuse to abide by these laws like i'm going to go be a fugitive y'all will just have to figure that out that's the that's the level of abolition liberation i want to operate at all times especially with my own self talk like it's so enormous and gigantic of a person to say, nah, and I'm coming back for my family and I'm going to be one of the most successful um, military commanders this country has ever seen. Like what, what a history. Um, But I also want to push people to think about Harriet Tubman as a naturalist and an herbalist and uh, a cook, like someone who had food skills that kept people alive and healthy um, and then Fannie Lou Hamer, I'm really honored to exist in the South. Like it, it doesn't really count, but like by proximity, I'm like, yeah, Southern women all day. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer is this really, I, I think of her as this incredible, um, specifically Black Southern experience, especially of our elders. I had a, babysitter named Rosa, who I love dearly. And Rosa has passed on now, but she used to tell us when we were kids that she didn't finish school. She was sharecropping with her family. So I I was raised in part by a woman who was a child and worked in cotton fields most of her life and then worked in the cotton mill when she was older. And that to me is so... It sends chills through my body to think about this history is not history to me. Like that's those were my formative years. Um so when I heard about Fannie Lou Hamer's story, I immediately thought of Rosa and I'm getting very emotional right now, but um just to think about being a six year old black girl and asked to work and then that's the rest of your life, um, being being in cotton fields and so poor, yet having this amazing skill to store food over winter and feed yourself through that is the type of endurance that I don't think we can afford as Black people, especially to keep being so removed from. So I'm trying to honor Fannie Lou Hamer's work and the work of all those agriculturalists and preservationists who fed people through very hard times and still are. And the Freedom Farm Cooperative, uh, my dream is to have the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm be a cooperative run farm in the future. I'd love it if it was very soon because doing this solo is rough. But the the Freedom Farm Cooperative that Fannie Lou Hamer founded prioritized poor people and, and you had to be a poor member. It was mixed in terms of race. There were Black members and white members in that part of Sunflower County. And I think that her adamant emphasis on poor people building power by being able to feed themselves working land, using a skill that had been used against them for centuries and centuries, is just so gracious and, or or like graceful. And it's ingenious, she knew if you can feed yourself, no one can push you around. And that's the realest thing. We see it today. People are, keep talking about food deserts. I'm putting quotes around that. It's food apartheid. You are purposely living next to garbage and that's all you have to eat because someone knows that as long as your body is in a constant state of, you know, sickness and, and disease and unwellness, you're controllable. But I, I mean, her vision is so... Um, powerful and impactful. And I really want to honor that. And personally, as someone with class privilege in this part of the South, I think that it's so important for me to leverage and do the work I can to create anti-capitalistic, both conversations and work in my class level. Like, um, I've been doing that work so hard in my family with my own mother. It's just like, no, we can't afford to have these kinds of words and, and ideas that are so anti-poor people. It's not, that is white supremacy and not on my farm. So I'm excited to uplift and honor and um, keep being inspired by these these women and the collective uh, liberation practice they they put forth into the world.
3: Yeah. And, and I guess that brings me to like, how, you know, like you, you talk a lot about, and I don't mean that in a way of like, (laughs) whoa, I just mean like you are doing it with all of the work that farming is. You're also deeply committed to the farm being a space for education. Yeah.
2: I, I really want to plant the seeds of radical unlearning there. And um, I think I'm in a prime place for that. Like, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, the farm is in Whitaker's and Rocky Mountain, North Carolina is not far off. Whitaker's has this radical Black history that I just learned about two years ago. And so one of my things is to get really educated on the history of here, because this is my home. This is where I am. This is literally where I'm planting roots and trying to grow. And I do believe that to connect to the people I want to see winning, I need to come with some humbleness and say, I have a lot to learn. So I'm getting myself educated that route. And, um, one of the ways I want to capture the, the interest and investment in, in the unlearning thing I'm talking about is just start, uh, I I don't want to use the word capture, but cultivate is, um, start with healing stuff I mean, Ahmad was murdered and then George Floyd and Brianna and Tony McDade, and it was like nonstop. So it seemed really critical to have some outlet for us at the land. Um, we did um, Planting for the Ancestors. That's a rolling event, but it's it was an invitation for Black people to come out to the land and basically... Along this path, I've mowed from the back of the 10 acres to the front of the road. You can plant a perennial that is native to the southeastern um, part of the continent. And the idea is that, you know, give your pain and grief and, and gratitude and some positive feelings, maybe joy and love to this land and this plant and let it transform and transmute into what it will And you'll have a plant here that's going to grow and grow and grow. And that's how I think about our ancestors' support is eternal. Um, I'm planning another event called Rejuvenate that's going to have a few meditative spaces and people can come out and just lay and get talked to by some Black healers. So having... The few visitors I've had so far, I see a twinkle hit people's eye. They're just so glad to be out there. And I've actually not seen that from people before. So I know this land is special and the intention that I've put into it is coming through. And I do believe that as that healing energy builds, people will start to see the farm as their place as well and start seeing land as part of them you know, if I'm hurting, I know I can go outside and sit on some grass and listen to the birds. And, you know, what if that starts being something I see more often in my town where I don't really see Black people lounging in public space, like Mm. just sitting with stillness. I don't see that often. And I'm very excited to have that turn into okay, I'm connected to this land, I think I can start building here and and seeing groups come out and do organizing. I want to do in-person education on the farm, but I'm also working on um, something called Land Lessons, which is a virtual learning experience where agriculture and ecology help us learn cooperative economics and liberation to this type of healing, especially when it's over over 600 years of trauma that we're dealing with, I know that this is not going to be done before I'm dead. (laughs) And um, that's why I want the farm to be a collective because it's the, I think it's the value system that is the perennial in this case. That's what's going to last forever. You know, the farm might not even be a farm when I can't farm anymore, who knows? But the vision I have is for us for a long time. I had
3: chills throughout my conversation with Dallas. The vision that Dallas has is so powerful and so necessary in this moment. I was yesterday years old when I learned that 98% of rural land in this country is owned by white people. And much of that land was worked and cared for for centuries by black people for no compensation and to this day, No real reparations. And before that, it was stewarded for millennia by Indigenous people. Black and Indigenous land ownership, stewardship, and leadership is essential. For all of us. You can support Dallas and the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm specifically via their webpage. It's linked in the show notes. I also encourage non-Black listeners to check out the Black and Indigenous Farmers Reparations Map, which was started by Soulfire Farm but includes projects all over the country. That is also linked. I'm so grateful to Dallas for telling this story. I'm grateful to the Heritage Radio Network for hosting this show. I'm grateful to Denali Gillespie for writing our theme song and to Natalie Uduwella for designing our logo. And I'm grateful to you for listening. I'm also grateful to be headed into the woods for a week. So be safe, be well, and I'll be in your feed on the other side.
1: This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter